Let us now pray together, uh, asking for the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, you instruct us by your holy scriptures. We urge you by your grace to enlighten our minds and cleanse our hearts, that reading, hearing, and meditating upon them, we may rightly understand and heartily embrace the things that you have revealed in them. By the Spirit, cause the reading of the gospel of your word to become a holy seed that may be received into our hearts as into good ground, and that we may not only hear your word, but keep it, living into conformity with your precepts, relying on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's hear our text here today, Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 1 and read through verse 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, then a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. So we are now in the season of Epiphany. This is a season where that which is hidden is revealed. It is a season where the glory of God is revealed. Epiphany focuses on what shows Jesus' glory. We see Jesus being revealed by the angels, by the shepherds, and the arrival of the Magi. When the Magi come, they declare the arrival of the King, the Anointed One who will deliver His people from their sin. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens will be torn. God the Father will reveal His beloved Son, and the Spirit will indwell the Son thus demonstrating His glory to the world. The Epiphany season runs, sometimes it focuses a little bit on the the wise men coming, but really runs from Jesus' baptism to His transfiguration. It's important for us to recognize that both in His baptism and His transfiguration, that God the Father reveals His glory in Jesus and that Jesus is his beloved son. Every year, the lectionary takes us through the life of Christ, 
we do see a little bit of a change because uh, there's a three-year cycle. The cycles focus one year on Matthew, one year on Luke, one year on Mark. And then the book of John is kind of put in in different places. And the, and the, the largest reason for that is this, that almost half of the book of John is dealing from the last week of Christ's life and ministry to his ministry right after the resurrection, a very short period of time. And so when you want to study the life of Christ and get all these different parts in here, you kind of have to focus on the other Gospels because the book of John is, is intense in that last period of Jesus' life. As we study at home or hear about the stories in the Bible at church, we don't usually struggle with the narrative because they're not about us, right? We hear the stories, we see the people, we see the interactions. But we do struggle with the text when it has a personal application that means that we must confess our sin and then change how we live. The application is then personal. One commentator puts it this way, Theology in big categories is necessary to form our application. That is to say, we need to know the doctrines, we need to know the story, and that helps us give the framework to understand its personal application. He says this, without the big categories, we'll end our days at the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. If we don't do the hard theological work, we will end up with weird notions of life, thinking that certain things are acceptable when the biblical reality says otherwise. Now this is, this is something that we need to grasp with. We need to take God's word, we need to study it, we need to look for the large categories. But even every doctrine, as abstract as it may be, has an application into our lives and how we live it each day. The baptism of Jesus is definitely this way. We read it, or about it, and we acknowledge it. If we really dig, we understand more deeply about its symbolism and some of its larger implications. But what does Jesus' baptism mean in how we live our daily lives? That's the question we need to answer beyond the doctrine that Jesus was baptized. We need both. Turning to our reading today, it again takes us back to John the Forerunner. At this point, we've been talking about John the Forerunner now for almost six weeks. You might say, can we get any more out of the text? Well, a little bit today. John comes onto the scene like a tornado warning. We know that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And we also know that people from all over Judea and some of those from Jerusalem went to him and all that went out there were baptized in the Jordan River. And what did they do? They confessed their sins. And if we take the narratives across all the Gospels, we see that John knows that Israel must repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He almost shouts that. He's out there. That tornado warning. If you've ever lived in the Midwest, where tornadoes are a constant problem, right? 
they have those tornado sirens. Anyone ever heard one of those go off? Okay. It can be a little unsettling. Anyone here ever been up close to a tornado? No? I, I, okay, a few over here. I, I was once at a stoplight, and, and I, I, I understood there was a warning. I was trying to get somewhere safe, but, but in Monroe, the land is completely flat. There's no dips to hide in. Normally, they say, get out of your car, you know, go get in a little dip, dip or gully. There was no place to go, and it went right across. I watched the roof come off. And the car is shaking. It was, it, it, was, it was pretty nervous. Of course, being a parent, my biggest concern was I knew I had a daughter at home who had just had surgery, and I needed to get to the house because she was there by herself. Nonetheless, John comes in, and he's, he's that warning. Hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? This means that God's judgment is coming. And remember, people of God, every time God's judgment is coming, there's also redemption. So, of course, we know how, how the, the people who are in power are. The Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem come out to see what's going on in the wilderness near the Jordan River. Of course, John is not impressed at all that they came, but he saw right through their motives. And we see this in Matthew 3, verse 7. G, uh, John is, is speaking to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Man, he is direct. He's warning everybody, but he's particularly taking those who are in church leadership to task. They were not there to repent, but rather to see what is going on so they may report back so that the religious leaders, especially the high priests, may continue to conspire and plot against God and his son. Think about this. If you, if you think about the life of Christ... What do you see the high priests and the scribes and the, and the leaders doing? They conspire together against God and His Son. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 2 here? John is sounding the alarm like a town in, a torna in Tornado Alley. John is the loud siren telling everyone to find safety in God by repentance. John makes it clear that he is not the anointed one to come, but the Christ is here, even among them, somewhere in Israel. John stays faithful to his call to call others to repentance and the subsequent baptisms. And the most astounding thing happens to John in his daily faithfulness. Jesus, the anointed one, comes and presents himself to John to be baptized. Now, John knows that his baptism is one of repentance. Jesus never sinned. Jesus does not need to repent. Jesus is the faithful son. But in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, it says that Jesus answered and said to John, <clears throat> Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him to be baptized. Why is Jesus baptized? What does Jesus mean by <clears throat> to fulfill all righteousness? In part, in receiving baptism, Jesus is identifying with his people. He has come to save them. 
In fact, remember that Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Jesus demonstrates in his life by example of what you and I must do. But there's much more going on here. Jesus, by virtue of being the Son of God, is king. But Jesus is also our priest. Jesus' baptism is to carry out God's plan of the priestly king. The writer of Hebrews makes this plain to us. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews 4 14 through 16 it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <clears throat> we also see in Hebrews 5, verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Right, so who, who is, right here in Hebrews 5, is speaking particularly about God himself setting him up as the priest. Where does that happen? At his baptism. Finally, in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, says this, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not being made with hands, that is, not of this creation. At Jesus' baptism, Jesus is given the priestly office. Now, there are three requirements to become a priest in the Scriptures. One, you have to be called. We heard in our passage for, from Hebrews 5 that he was called by God to be the high priest. You have to be 30 years old. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, tells us that Jesus was 30 years old at the beginning of his ministry. And then the third thing that must, that must be done in order to be qualified as a priest is to be sprinkled or washed ceremonially by another priest. Remember that John the forerunner is a priest. His father is a priest on the rotation at the temple. And we know this, of course, from the story where the angel announces to Zechariah at the, at the temple that the once barren Elizabeth will be with child, who is John. The priest John is fulfilling the passage out of Numbers chapter 8. Beginning with verse 6, it says this, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonial. Thus you shall do to them, to them cleanse them, sprinkle water of purification on them. So we see that Jesus, in this case, fulfills all of these things. Jesus' baptism is his ordination as priest. But Jesus is not a priest according to Aaron, as he was from Judah, which made him the king, of course. But as a priest, Jesus is of the oldest order of priesthood. We see it prophesied in Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn, I will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
As you all know, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is the priestly king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, who brought to Abraham bread and wine. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. Jesus is the priestly king who will die, be buried, resurrected, and ascend for us. When Jesus is baptized, we see that in Christ we will be reconciled to God. Back to our passage in Mark 1, at verse 10, it says, And immediately, remember, just I want to point this out, the word immediately shows up all the time in the book of Mark, right? Jesus has got a purpose. He is immediately doing things. He's going to the next thing. He's doing the right thing and then going to the next right thing. For every one of us in this room, that's how we need to go through our days. Do the right thing and immediately go and do the next right thing. Because we all know this. Whether you're at work and things are thrust upon you that get you out of your plan, or your little children are sick at home, or you have a flat tire, all the providences that God puts in our lives, we're to simply go from doing the right thing to immediately doing the next right thing. But again, Immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Our translations use the words that the heavens were parting. But the word parting here is better translated as ripped or torn vigorously. Mark only uses this word in one other place in his gospel. And that is when the temple veil is torn in two, so that by Christ's death, we now know that we are no longer cut off from God, but are able, by the virtue of being in Christ, excuse me, to be able to have access to the sanctuary of God and come before God our Father. At Jesus' baptism, there is a renewed creation. We see that Jesus' baptism instructs us, in Jesus, there is a new creation. This creation takes us from death and bondage of sin in the old creation to life set free from bondage in the new creation. We hear the echoes of creational language. Consider our Old Testament reading from today, Genesis chapter 1. In in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. In Jesus' baptism, we see that the Spirit descends over the waters, and that God speaks and reveals the light of the world in Jesus, and that new things are formed. God speaks to all those that are present. And what he says, Jesus is my beloved son. Mark uses the phrase beloved son three times. First, we see it here at Jesus' baptism, where the triune God is revealed to the world. Second, We also see it at the transfiguration, where God in his glory cloud overshadows Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 7, it says this, 
And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. This time when the father proclaims that Jesus is his beloved son, he makes the point to the disciples that they need to listen to Jesus' words. You would think by that point it would be pretty evident, right? But, but just like the disciples, all of us in this room are dull. We need to be reminded that we need to hear God's words. Now, for many of you, you started a new year, and perhaps you're looking at your new uh, scripture reading plan for the year. I know some of you guys do one that runs from September through the end of the year, September to August. But many people renew up at the first of the year. Make time to read and hear God's Word. Obviously, you're making time to hear it in church, but make time in your life to hear God's Word and then apply it. The beloved son reminds us of Abraham with his son, whom he loved, Isaac. And we know that Isaac was redeemed from dying on the altar. God, however, is going to give his beloved son to die so that we can be reconciled to him. We see this especially clearly in Mark's final use of the beloved son. And it becomes very clear in the parable of the wicked vineyard workers in Mark 12. The vineyard owner leases his vineyard to servants who are to give honor and glory to him in tribute paid from the vineyard. By the way, remember this, that, that in this parable, that the vineyard workers, they didn't plant the vineyard. No, they, they were leasing it. It says that the, that the vineyard owner, he planted it, he built it, and then he gave it to others, and they are to give a portion to him. That's just like us. God gives us new life. He gives us things in our lives to be responsible for. And we are to pay tribute to him by bringing him glory, by taking what he's given us and returning a portion to him in our tithes, which represent all the work that we do. Each day as you go through your day, are you doing things so that you can take glory and give it back to God? The vineyard owner leases his vineyard to servants who are to give him honor and glory. But what do they do instead? It says that, they, that these wicked servants conspire against the vineyard owner. Again, think Psalm 2. Mark 12, verse 6 says this, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent, to them, sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They didn't want to be under the authority and rule of the vineyard owner or his son. What did they desire? They desired the power and the glory for themselves. Jesus is the beloved son who will die at the hands of those who will conspire or who conspire against God for their own glory and power. Now, this is important. Again, if you think about the end of Jesus' life, again, you see this very clearly. Jesus' belovedness is prophetically spoken of in Isaiah 42, where God is rejoicing in the faithfulness of his servant. Beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom 
my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And of course it goes on all the more in Isaiah 42, speaking about the restoration of his people in Israel. But it's to the Gentiles and Israel. Jesus' baptism is the fulfillment of Psalm 42. Jesus' baptism fulfills righteousness. Jesus' baptism makes Jesus an instrument of righteousness by being our priest and our sacrifice. When we are baptized, we share in Christ's baptism. And in baptism, we share in His death. We share in His burial. And we also share in His resurrection. Jesus received baptism so that we, by our baptism, are joined to Him. This means that there is a true reality that we are no longer in bondage to our sin. In our baptism with Christ, we have a newness of life. This is not a theoretical newness of life. It is a reality. Too many of us in the church, we don't live in the reality of the newness of life. Hear the reality of this newness for the church, for each one of you, out of Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus identifies with us as the great high priest. By his holy life, Jesus makes us acceptable to God. Baptism unites us to him, and so we've been united into the triune God. The reality for all of us is that we have been transformed already. We are not simply looking for freedom from sin in the future. It's easy for us to do this, right? I have a sinful nature. I'm going to sin. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to cling to it because I really know the real set free is at the end. That's not what Romans 6 is saying. Romans 6, God's holy word to you and to I, says that we are in Christ Jesus right now and we have newness of life right now. We are to walk in newness of life now. We are not helpless. We are without excuse because we have been baptized into the righteous life, the bloody death, and baptized into the resurrection of Jesus. There is a final deliverance at the last resurrection, but the scripture is quite clear that we live in the reality of the new life now. We are not to pretend like we are still in bondage to sin. People of God, each one of you here today, 
stop it. We must face the reality that we are in Christ Jesus. We must reckon ourselves to our real status in Christ. You must acknowledge and live like you are no longer a slave. Romans chapter 6, a little further down in verse 11 says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, what? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it and its lusts. If you are baptized into Christ, there is no excuse for your sin. You are freed from your sin. In Christ, we are truly human. Christ is the first true human. In sin, we act as beasts. Do not live like a beast. Stop your sexual sin and lusts. Stop looking at porn and the images of the videos that incite your lusts. Stop your covetousness and envy. Stop despising what God has given to others. Stop your petty jealousies and the gossip that goes with it. Stop losing your temper and bringing wrath into your home and your relationships. Do not make excuses for your selfishness. You are no longer a slave to your emotion. People of God, our emotions are bad evaluators of reality. How you feel about something has to be in submission to God and His Word. You see, if we live by our emotions, we're tossed to and fro, we're double-minded in what we do. You see, our emotions are poor evaluators of reality, especially the reality of being baptized in Christ Jesus, and therefore, newness of life. When things go contrary to us, we cannot be unhappy. You must give yourselves as a servant of righteousness, submitting to what God is giving you. Remember, we keep talking about this. God gives His gifts, and in His gifts, there are usually hard providences that go along with it. God is at work in His purposes for His Son, for you, and the nations. He will make all the nations His disciples. History has been secured for us. We are tied to Christ in our baptism. Because of Christ, we live in the reality of the newness of life. And we are able to mortify our sin and to glorify God so that people will see our good works and not give us glory, but glorify our Father in heaven. Let us pray. Gracious God in heaven, please protect us from the folly of hearing your word without doing it. We ask for your spirit to accompany us in the application in, of all that we have heard, and we moreover ask that he ensure that we obey what we have been taught.
grant that we may daily remember our baptism to Christ. You've marked us out with our baptism in that we have lived, died, and are resurrected in Christ Jesus. May we live in the reality that we are no longer in bondage to sin. By your Spirit, let us walk in newness of life that you have bestowed upon us for your beloved Son's sake, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.